Hi, everyone. Tonight's episode is the long-awaited sequel to last season's Hometown Legend finale. We're working on a few things on the back end this week. And this is typically where I like to share last season's Part 2 closer anyway. Now keep in mind, this is an episode that aired exclusively on our Patreon page. Part of content that you can unlock for $4 or less per month. But tonight, everyone gets a glimpse of what's behind that curtain. So, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, your Season 10 Hometown Legends Finale, Part 2. Welcome to Monsters Among Us Beyond, number 42. I am your guide, Derek Hayes. Ladies, gentlemen, ghouls, welcome to another installment of Monsters Among Us Beyond. A very special installment, in fact. As the title suggests, this is the second half of your hometown legends, season 10 finale special. And just as we did with part one, I have an amazing array of terrifying tales to share with you. And of course, I must say that hometown legends tend to have violent origins. And as a result, violence will be discussed on this episode. So parental guidance and trigger warnings and all that. Now, before we share our first call, I want to kick this thing off with a hometown legend of my own. And since I've been sharing so many over the years, I find myself casting a larger and larger net. That's really a nice way of saying that I cheated. The following story is from my home state, but not my hometown. Far from it, actually. But the story was simply too good not to share. It's the tale of the Hatchet Man, or Hatchet Man Road, of Logan County, Ohio. Now, the main story I was able to source was that in the mid-1800s, a man named Andrew Hellman butchered his wife and kids with a hatchet. Now, as brutal as that deed was, it was only made more twisted when Andrew assembled the body parts of his slain family in an intricate design in the road in front of their cabin. The rumor is today that you can still see the mangled limbs lying in the road as drivers speed by. It's gruesome, right? Well, as soon as I read about it, I knew I had to dive in. But to my surprise, the Ohio Hatchet Man isn't even the most popular of the Hatchet Men. Allow me to introduce you to the Hatchet Man of Kalamazoo, Michigan. 
Hatchet Man Road, an eerie spot to many, with a story that lingers. The legend of Hatchet Man Road, this has been around for a few days, at least 30 years or so. The road is a patch of 28th Avenue between M40, south of Goebbels and 9th Street near Kalamazoo, and crosses over Campbell Creek. It's now said that you can see his spirit and the kid's ghost and the, uh, the wife's ghost through the woods, you know. And if you drive there at night, you'll see uh, the white face of a little girl up in the trees. You'll see dark shadows going across the road in front of you. A story that John Robinson, a radio host, has had the chance to hear from several people who have experienced their own occurrences down this road. Back in the 1980s, there's this guy that lived down Hatchet Man Road. Well, it's not called Hatchet Man Road yet. But he was a paranoid guy. He had a wife and, and kids. And so he was so worried about the end of the world that he built a bomb slash fallout shelter next to his house. But as time went on, the legend says the man got paranoid. So to spare them from a horrible death, he picks up a hatchet and kills them. To spare them from a horrible death, figure, go figure that out. It said the man then killed himself. Several of those who drive down Hatchet Man Road after midnight believe in the haunted sightings. But even during the day, you may be spooked. I'll tell you ahead of time, there are some people that dress up as those creepy clowns and stand by the side, even in the daytime. So if you do drive down there and you see that, it's just, just regular people just trying to scare you. So try it if you dare, but drive slow. Keep two hands on the wheel and don't close your eyes. Good God. Creepy clowns as well. That package comes to us from WXMI, Fox 17, out of western Michigan. So it goes without saying that I had a difficult time tracking down info about Ohio's infamous hatchet man. But it didn't come up completely dry. It turns out that the tale of old Andrew Hellman was real. And he really was a monster. The following snippet is an interview with a local historian to Logan County. Mr. John McPherson, courtesy of Peak of Ohio. One of the most enduring favorites in Logan County is the legend of Hatchet Man. It's a story that has been passed from generation to generation. While many of the ghost stories and legends are purely fiction, the legend of Hatchet Man is actually rooted in an actual horrific account of the first murders in Logan County by a man named Andrew Hellman. Mary Hellman foiled a plot by her husband to poison her, but he later was successful in poisoning their three children. Two of the children died on April 26, 1839. Andrew Hellman brutally murdered his wife with an axe, so he was immediately charged with murder and taken to the old log jail downtown in Bell Fountain. After being held in jail for over 14 months, he made his escape and fled to Baltimore, Maryland. And once there, he married a lady by the name of Melinda Hinkle. The following year, he murdered her with an axe also and chopped her body up, putting parts of her in the house and part of her out in the orchard. And he was arrested for this crime, and this time he was tried and hanged. Now, legend has it that Hellman's ghost is often seen wielding his bloody hatchet in the area of the old Hellman farm near Township Road 56 in MacArthur Township, and that his tombstone in a nearby cemetery has an eerie glow to it after dark. 
By the way, this was the only mention I could find of a glowing tombstone in relation to this legend. But the internet is not necessarily the best source for info on these types of stories. At least not yet. Now I have an amazing program lined up here. So let's get it started. Our first caller of the evening hails from my state of California. Please join me in welcoming Eddie to the program. Hey Derek, this is Eddie. I called in a while back about the Exorcist Steps. And this is going to be a hometown legend from California, and that's where I'm calling from. Basically, it's about Bodie, California. It's about this cursed ghost town. Apparently, the legend has it that any items that are taken from the ghost town are basically cursed. And a lot of people have been known to return these ghost town relics or artifacts back to the post office in Bodie because they've had a string of bad luck. I have not been to this town, but uh, I found a website that has backpackerverse.com as the site. And they got four short stories, basically. One is the cursed money. It says in 1972, during a family's visit, two little girls found a bed where people threw dollar bills and change. The girls used a stick to get some of the money and took their treasure home. However, the family suffered financial problems afterwards as its members couldn't hold jobs or keep their home. Two, a vicious bad luck cycle. In 1994, a tourist picked up a few souvenirs from Bodhi. Within the span of a year, he suffered from a car accident, lost his job, and was ill for most of the year. He consulted a psychic who advised him to put the items back. He returned the items anonymously. Three, the cursed rock necklaces from Bodhi. Around the early 2000s, two teenage girls picked rocks from Bodhi and made necklaces of them. At first, they thought they were having a spill of bad luck. However, things took a turn for the worse, and their bad luck started affecting them physically. The skin the rock necklace touched developed rashes, and one of the girls suffered from a sprained ankle. After an earthquake hit their town, they returned the necklaces to Bodhi. The last one is the cursed bottle. A German man picked a bottle from Bodhi, only to have an accident on the Autobahn upon his return to Germany. His son took the same bottle to school, and while riding his bike, had an accident. So I guess their post office is flooded with items that come back, apparently causing bad luck to the people who took them home. Park rangers say they believe the curse is just uh, a legend to keep people from stealing stuff from this ghost town, pretty much making the ghost town even more of a ghost town as its artifacts disappear. I haven't been there but uh, a little wary about going there and having a pebble or something inadvertently stick in the bottom of my shoe and I take it home with me and have my own string of bad luck. So I'm intrigued, but a little wary. Enjoy the show. Hope you can use this. Talk to you soon. Bye. Thank you, Eddie. This certainly isn't the first time we've heard a story like this. A curse on those that like to take home a little souvenir. In fact, the last time we spoke of this, it was in regards to Pele's curse in the Hawaiian Islands. 
Growing up in Hawaii, I knew never to move lava rocks, but not everyone does. I reached out to the Island of Hawaii Visitors Bureau to find out why you shouldn't take rocks and how often they see lava rocks returned. I spoke to Ross Birch, the executive director of the Island of Hawaii Visitors Bureau. We still get some. It's pretty infrequent anymore as I think the folklore has trickled into our visitors and they understand a little bit more and have an education a little bit deeper than they did maybe five to ten years ago. A recent post by Haleakala National Park on Maui states they received more than 1,200 rocks this year in the mail. Birch tells me some rocks return in an empty box, but... Other ones, and for the most part, come with very detailed specifics of what happened in their lives, illnesses coming into the family, death in the family, or different things that have happened over a period of time. And the catalyst has always kind of been having that rock. He says they usually give the rocks to the Hawaii Volcano National Park Ranger to put back. The rocks are basically a piece of, of Pele herself, and it belongs here as one whole unit. And even the smallest, most minute, uh, still has some significance. It still has uh, powers. It still has the uh, ability or, or the connection to the island, regardless of how large or small it is. Now that clip is courtesy of KHON, 2 News, out of the Aloha State. And as serious as they seem to take the legend down there, they're not the only ones. Here's a good one. Colorado Parks and Wildlife says someone sent in a rock they claim was cursed. The sender wrote that someone had taken the rock from a park in Colorado. The letter said someone brought this home to me three years ago and bad things have been happening ever since. Parks and Wildlife says it's a vivid reminder. The best practice when visiting the parks, take only photographs and leave only footprints. And that one was courtesy of KCNC, CBS News 2 out of Denver. Now, believe it or not, I've actually done something similar in hopes that a spirit would actually follow me home. Allow me to explain. You see, back in the fall of, I believe, 2003, some friends and I took a trip from college to the East Coast. Places like Washington, D.C., Eastern Virginia, and Baltimore. And, of course, I convinced my group to spend a few hours at Edgar Allan Poe's former residence and his permanent one as well. You see, Poe is buried in the graveyard of the Westminster Presbyterian Church, only a short walk from that former residence. Well, he's buried there somewhere. Upon his death in October of 1849, he was laid to rest in the rear of the cemetery. Over time, his plot grew decrepit, and the vegetation had taken over. But wait, I, I'm getting ahead of myself. While I was there, I saw a nice, shiny chunk of quartz, about the size of a golf ball, lying in the dirt. Now, not only was it significant that the stone just happened to be laying at the foot of his grave, a man I've idolized for a majority of my life. No, not only that, the stone was calling to me. Pick me up, it almost cried. A sign, perhaps, or simply my subconscious way of coping with the dastardly deed in which I was about to partake. You can decide. But I plucked the stone from the patchy grass and I took it home. I can almost hear some of you clutching your pearls now. 
but hold your water. I paid for it. I left the man a penny. But back to the part about his grave and its peculiar whereabouts. You see, Poe has two burial sites at that location. As I mentioned moments ago, he was originally laid to rest behind Westminster Hall in the small cemetery located there. But what I didn't mention is that Poe died penniless, so he did not have a proper burial marker. That's when Mother Nature and a trash pile began to take over. And in a series of events, no doubt kickstarted by Edgar's mother-in-law herself, Maria Clem, word began to circulate about the condition of the revered author's resting place. That's when a schoolteacher named Miss Sarah Sigourney Rice stepped in. She founded a program called Pennies for Poe that encouraged schoolchildren to donate pennies to raise money to not only afford him a monument worthy of his achievements, but to exhume and reinter not only his remains, but also those of his love, Virginia, who was currently buried in New York. By 1875, funds were raised, and the body was exhumed among a crowd of onlookers. Some claimed to have seen raven locks of hair spill out from the decaying casket. Still others claimed to have captured some as a macabre souvenir. But still some others claimed that the wrong body was exhumed and moved. Now it's somehow fitting that even in death, that man keeps us guessing. So my offer to Poe, like so many others before, during, and since, was a single, solitary, copper penny. Now I still have the rock, by the way, and so far, no sign of Mr. Poe or the poor soul they mistakenly put in his place. I'll slap a picture of the stone up in the show notes if you want to take a look. And it's been a while since we've spoke of synchronicity, but the town of Bodie, California, from Eddie's story that I derailed. It was founded only a few short months after the reburial of Old Edgar, proving that anything can be connected, if you try hard enough. Thanks again, Eddie, for the entry, and for letting me brag about my rock. Our next call also involves a cemetery. Please welcome Heidi from the state of Washington to the program. Hi, Derek. My name's Heidi from Washington State. I've listened to most of the episodes of the show, I think. I've been binge listening, but I don't think I've heard all of them, so I don't know if you've already heard this story. It's for the Hometown Legends segment, and it's about the Maltby Cemetery and the 13 Steps to Hell. The cemetery was established in 1901, and many of the area's first European settlers are buried there. The legend goes that inside this cemetery there's a mausoleum with 13 steps leading down to the tomb, and anyone who descends all 13 steps will see the fires of hell and go crazy. It's also been said that some satanic cult members had performed rituals out there in the cemetery and that dead bodies had been discovered in the woods nearby. But back in the 70s and 80s, Teens would go there at night and party all the time, and they'd often dare each other to descend the steps. Um, when I was growing up, I heard the occasional rumor about somebody who'd actually done this and gone mad, but of course it was never anybody that I actually knew and couldn't be verified. <laughs> Unfortunately, a lot of vandalism has happened there 
so uh, gravestones were kicked over and broken and beer bottles and garbage left on the grounds. Eventually, the management decided to close the cemetery to the public. And nowadays, only people who can show that they have a relative buried there are allowed to enter the cemetery. Since the 1980s, the cemetery has been surrounded by a housing development, and the caretaker's house blocks any view of it from the street. So people are discouraged from inquiring about the cemetery at all. And I've heard the police are called to deal with anybody who sneaks inside. Apparently, the mausoleum and the 13 stairs really did exist. It belonged to a wealthy local family. The burial chamber was constructed with a large mound of dirt built up around it, and the stairs descended into the mound. However, because of all the trespassing and vandalism, the stairs were filled in with dirt several years ago, so nobody can see the stairs anymore. I imagine that the legend about people going crazy at the bottom of the stairs is probably not true. (laughs) And the stories about the satanic cult activity are kind of doubtful also because the cemetery is basically in the caretaker's backyard and he can easily see anybody that's messing around out there. I did a quick search for articles about any dead bodies being found in the area and found a sad one about a young lady who was cut up and put in a suitcase and found on the road very close to the cemetery. In addition to all the wild claims about the cemetery, there have also been several reports of people seeing apparitions of women and children in period clothing kind of more typical of what you'd hear from a graveyard. Anyway, that's the story of the Malby Cemetery and the 13 Steps to Hell. I really enjoy your show. Thank you so much for putting all the effort into it every week, and I'm going to keep listening. Thanks. Bye. Thank you, Heidi, for the entry. You may be shocked to know that your 13-step legend is not the only one like it here in the States. Just outside the small Midwestern town of Palo, Iowa, sits Pleasant Ridge Cemetery, where they too have 13 famous steps leading to their infamous haunted graveyard. Reports of ghostly voices, moving objects, physical touching, and even full-bodied apparitions are associated with this odd locale. Now, there's no mention of gateways to hell or anything along those lines, but I thought it was too peculiar not to mention I've linked to info on each place in the show notes, if you'd like to take a look. And thanks again, Heidi, for sending that one in. Now guys, if you have a call you would like to share, you can simply call the hotline at 1-888-608-NIGHT. That's 1-888-608-6444. Or if you have evidence to submit, visit the Report Your Sightings tab on the website, at monstersamonguspodcast.com for all those options. Now our next entry comes to us from a state that brings us Pukwudgies, witches, and the Gloucester monster. So you know this is going to be good. Please welcome our anonymous caller from Massachusetts to the program. Hi, Derek. Well, I wanted to call in and share my story for Hometown Legends, which I know I'm late for, but I still just wanted to share a little story. So I live in the Boston area, and I think this is interesting because the house that I live in now, we've been here for 30 years, so we moved in like in the 90s, early 90s, and Boston is pretty thickly settled. There's this one area behind my house, I calculated that's probably like 10 acres, that there's no development. And it's kind of been like that ever since we've been here. Although when we moved in in the 90s, there was one house 
kind of like in this area. It was kind of up on a hill, and they called it Bloody Mary's house. So it's like somebody had started building this home but never finished. And I guess over the, what, once years, I don't know how long it was, you know, the neighborhood kids would go over there and vandalize it, spray paint it, you know, just do bad stuff. And I had been up there a couple of times with the other teenagers in the neighborhood. I was a teenager at the time. And, you know, I was good, so I didn't break anything or do any graffiti, you know. <laughs> but people would go into the house, into the bathroom, where there was a mirror, and they would play Bloody Mary. I never did that. I was much too scared. But one time, my little cousin and his friend went up into, like, this underdeveloped area on their way to Bloody Mary's house, and they said that they, well, one night they came back, and they were just really excited, and they said, you know, we saw the Chupacabra. And we were like, what are you talking about? And he said that when they were walking, because the interesting thing about this area is even though it's underdeveloped, there's one paved road that goes up to the house and kind of continues out the other way to where there's like civilization again. So they said they were walking up this road and in the bushes on the side of the road, they saw a creature about two feet tall that had glowing eyes. And uh, my cousin's friend said, oh my God, it's the Chupacabra. And they said they started throwing rocks at it. And when they hit it, they said it just fell over, almost as if it was a statue. It just fell over, and then they ran. And then I guess when they needed to come back home and go down that road, they wanted to see if it was still there, and they came back probably like 10 minutes later, and it was gone. So they were very excited when they told the story. Of course, we didn't believe them. But my experience in this area, when I had gone up there by myself, is I was walking up this road and, you know, just being outside, enjoying the outside. And there's like a stockade fence with a gate on the other side that leads to like, you know, the other part of civilization. And as I'm walking down this road, I see the gate and I always say, oh, that's interesting. And I notice the gate looks like it's slightly open, like cracked. And I walked up to it and the closer I get to the gate, the more open it looks. But once I got to the point where I could cross it, the gate was wide open. And I thought that was interesting. And as I was walking towards the gate, it looked like it was opening, but I wasn't sure. I was like, maybe this is just a trick of my eyes or something. So I just kind of walked there, just out of curiosity to see where that road led. So once I looked and I said, okay, I'll just head back the way I came. So I start going down that road again. And I kind of look and the gate's still wide open. And I walk down a little bit more, turn back and look. Now the gate's like half closed until I get to the point where like I kind of started where I could first see the gate and now yeah it looks like just cracked open again just like open just a little bit so that was my my weird experience with Bloody Mary's house (laughs) the weird thing about this area is like I said this is in Boston which is a thickly settled area and recently there's been so much development around here it's interesting that for 30 years, that area in back of my house is still undeveloped. So after a while, probably in the 2000s, I guess people eventually just came in and tore the house down completely. And nobody else attempted to build there, except somebody made like a driving range back there, you know, for golfers. And that only lasted a couple years as well before that got torn down. And once again, the area is just bare. There's nothing there. Now the road is overgrown. I think it's interesting that this area is next to two graveyards. I don't know if that has anything to do with it, but that's my really quick, (laughs) kind of interesting hometown legend. So thank you, Derek. Um, I'm a big fan. I've probably been listening to your show for about a year. I think you do a great job. I love your show. I'm a Patreon. But yeah, keep up the good work.
Thanks, caller. There's a lot to process in this call, so I'm just going to focus on one singular part. The mention of the Massachusetts Chupacabra. Now at first I thought there was a flap of sightings that I somehow missed that originated from that state. So I did some digging and I didn't really find anything of note. That's when it dawned on me. There's a hometown legend from the nearby town of Dover, Massachusetts, less than 15 miles from Boston's downtown. And back in 1977, a handful of sightings put a creature in that town back on the map. A creature not too unlike what our caller described. A creature known as the Dover Demon. 17-year-old Bill Bartlett went out for the evening with two of his high school buddies. As he drove along Farm Street with the music blaring, Bartlett noticed something moving along a stone wall at the edge of the road. There, he caught a glimpse of a creature with an unusually round head, long spindly arms and fingers, a pale complexion, and glowing orange eyes. He turned the music down. Did you guys see that? See what, Billy? That thing next to the road. His friends turned to look, but they saw nothing and convinced Bartlett to turn the car around to get a better look. But when they returned, whatever he saw was gone. A few hours later, 15-year-old John Baxter was walking down Miller's Hill Road, about a mile from Farm Street. As he strolled under a streetlight, he noticed a small person coming towards him. But upon closer look, it wasn't a person at all, and whatever it was, ran into the woods. John chased after it into an open field. There, peering into the darkness, he saw the same odd figure clutching a tree. It wasn't human or like any animal he'd ever seen. Baxter hurried back to the road and ran straight home. He sketched what he had seen, and the image that he drew was very similar to the entity that Bill Bartlett claimed to have seen just a few hours earlier. Then, the following evening, young Abby Brabham and her boyfriend Will Tainter were driving along Springdale Avenue. Along the roadside, they saw a creature crawling on all fours with the same characteristics that Bill Bartlett and John Baxter had described, except that it had glowing green eyes. Once again, the elusive figure vanished before they could get a closer look. Now that clip was courtesy of the folklorist on YouTube. Now I just recently found John Harrigan, aka the folklorist, and I have to say his content is amazing. If you like stories of the paranormal, go give that a look. Well, as you probably noticed, the description of the Dover Demon and that of the creature our caller mentioned are quite similar. Toss in the fact that both stories took place in roughly the same city, and this should lift an eyebrow or two. But even I will admit that quite a bit of time has passed between these two flaps. Then again, we have heard of creatures like this before, on this program even. So maybe there's something out there lurking, and only pops out every so many years. Thanks again, caller. I love the story of the Dover Demon and will jump at any opportunity to discuss further. Well, for this next one, let's venture to the nearby state of Maryland, where Daniel has a hometown legend to share with us. Hi, Derek. This is Daniel from Western Maryland. I have a story for you that's part local legend, part personal experience. This takes place in a small community called Mountain Lake Park and its neighboring community, Lachlan Heights. 
during the summer of 2019, my girlfriend and her family moved into a house with her brother's girlfriend. Now, her brother's girlfriend has lived in this house for several years, if not all her life. I haven't clarified that, but she's lived there long enough to be familiar with all the creaking and usual things that go on in this old building. She swears that the house is haunted. Things flying off shelves, unusual sounds, things like that. Her boyfriend also says that he's experienced some of these things, and the house is known to the rest of the neighborhood as a haunted house. So there are plenty of people who have witnessed the strange things there and believe there are spirits wandering the area. I'm a firm skeptic, though. I'd love to see something I can't truly explain or kind of shrug off as just an unusual coincidence. This particular instance I'm about to relate, however, had me kind of second-guessing my skepticism. My girlfriend's room ended up being the room that was known to have the most activity. Her family had lived there for about a month, and I regularly spent the night. Since my girlfriend's brother is also my best friend, it just makes sense that I would spend a lot of time there. But throughout that entire time, night or day, I never personally experienced anything that led me to believe that there was anything unusual about the house, even if the others had strange things happen. Their mother said her granddaughter, my girlfriend's daughter, would talk about the nice old lady who visited her downstairs. No one would know who she was talking about. It just kind of sounded like a creepy kind of imaginary friend to me. Another time, my girlfriend said she'd heard someone whistling downstairs when there was no one there. Her brother's girlfriend says that her grandfather used to sit in the corner downstairs and whistle when he was still alive. So maybe that's what she'd heard. It all sounded a bit exaggerated to me. Not that I think any of them were lying. I just know that sometimes whenever something creeps you out, it's easy to misremember or add to the experience, especially when you have to constantly live with the idea that your house is not to be haunted. I'd say that information alone is enough to prime the mind for misinterpreting unusual events. One night, however, my girlfriend and I were lying on her bed with the lights off, watching a TV show. Nothing scary, just a little tense. The light in the hallway was on, and you could see it coming through at the bottom of the door, which was shut. I'd say this was probably about 11 p.m. Out of the corner of my eye, I noticed the shadow on the other side of the door, I assumed. I looked for a minute, trying to figure out who had gotten out of bed and was just weirdly standing on the other side of the door when I heard my girlfriend gasp like, and when I looked at her, she just seemed shaken and was staring at the door. So I asked, but what's wrong? She didn't really answer. And I looked back at the door to try and figure out why she was kind of scared looking, and I couldn't see anything, just the usual darkness of that corner of the room and the shadow under the door. The shadow moved back down the hallway, and I looked at my girlfriend, and her voice kind of quivered. Like, there was a little girl. So I got up, and I checked through the house to see if anything weird was going on. Everyone was in their rooms. All the kids were asleep or with an adult who said they hadn't walked down the hall, and the cat was outside. I tried to recreate the shadow by pushing on the door at different angles, but I couldn't. I couldn't find anything that would have moved down the hall to, to create it. To this day, I can't rationally explain that strange moment. If it was a ghost or something like that, though, we'd all thought it was strange since most everyone who actually reports seeing full-bodied apparitions in that house usually either sees an old man, thought to be the grandfather, or an old lady who nobody really knows who she would be. One interesting and unfortunate possibility involves a bit of the community's darker moments. In Mountain Lake Park, just down the road from the house, 
is a sculpted memorial of some children playing. One child hangs freely, and if you push it, it'll swing. Some people report seeing the child swinging on its own at night, but I personally think that a strong enough gust of wind could probably do that. The sculpture was erected in a memory of a tragic accident years and years ago, which a school bus stalled on a railroad crossing in Loch Lynn, and a train collided with it, killing seven children and injuring 11 more. It's said that if you drive onto the railroad crossing and place the car in neutral, that the ghosts of these children will take note of you, and if you're an evil person, your car will stall out. But if you're a good person, your car will start to shift off the tracks, supposedly being pushed by those children. When researching this, I learned that 2019, the year that my strange experience occurred, marked 60 years since the tragedy. A bit of eerie information to me. Many people believe that the ghosts of these victims haunt Loch Lynn and Mountain Lake Park. I had a strange feeling as I drove home that night, all the way until I exited Mountain Lake Park. So, was it possible that my girlfriend saw the ghost of one of the crash victims? I still think there has to be another explanation, but who knows? There are a lot of great local legends around here, so I might have to call back in sometime. Rework on the podcast. I love it. Can't wait to listen to the next one. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, Daniel. Your tragic tie-in reminded me of a hometown legend-worthy story I discussed on a past episode of Paranormal Caught on Camera. Back in 1925, the small town of DeSoto, Illinois, was ravished by a massive tornado. Despite hiding out in the basement of the local elementary, 300 teachers and students lost their lives when the twister collapsed the building on top of them. The story goes that the children can still be heard playing on the nearby playground late at night. And of course, if you try to investigate the odd sounds, you'll find nothing but the vast of darkness. Now I wonder if, like Daniel, the nearby residents of that disaster too experience odd happenings that they can only attribute to those lost souls from nearly 100 years ago. Thanks again, Daniel, for the story. Now before we dive deeper this evening, I just want to remind everyone listening that you can support the show by purchasing merchandise from the shop at Monsters Among Us podcast forward slash shop or by clicking the shop tab. We have several more creepy calls and harrowing hometown legends to process. So let's get back to the action. And our next entry comes to us out of the United States. Please welcome Jeremy back to the program from Canada. Hey Derek, this is Jeremy from Manitoba with my second hometown legend. And this one is about the Falcon Lake UFO incident, which I know is fairly well known. You actually, you discussed it back in the before times in season three or four and played the Unsolved Mysteries clip about it. But I figured, you know, it's it's a fun story. It's not so much a hometown legend as it is a well-documented encounter, but there's a lot of information out there about it. And I think it is, it's one of the if not the most well-known Canadian UFO encounter. Basically what happened, this takes place in 1967, and there was an amateur geologist by the name of Stephen Mahalik. And just a side note, if anybody watched that Unsolved Mysteries clip, they were pronouncing his last name wrong. But that's beside the point. 
So basically, May 20th, 1967, Stephen Mahalik is out in Falcon Lake, which is in Whiteshell Provincial Park on the Canadian Shield. Beautiful area, loads of great outdoor activities, hiking, fishing, canoeing, camping. It's gorgeous. So with all these rocks there, uh, Mahalik is out and he's just out by himself chipping away one evening and he hears all these geese honking. So he looks up and sees two reddish glowing cigar shaped objects in the sky. At this point, one of them landed on a flat rock nearby and turned kind of more into a saucer shape while the other one hovered for a bit and then flew off. So Stephen was unsure of what he was seeing. So he sat back and sketched them for about half an hour. And then at that point, thinking that it might be an American military vehicle or something that was in trouble, he, uh, he approached. And as he was approaching, he noticed a strong smell of sulfur and warm air coming off the craft. And he said he could hear a, a whirring or a hissing sound like engines. When he approached, a door opened up on the side and there was bright lights inside and voices. So still thinking that this might be the military grouper experiment that was in trouble. He called out to the Yankee boys and asked if they needed help, and he never got a response. He noticed as he's standing nearby, still unsure of what he's looking at, that the craft was completely smooth. There was no seams on it. He was wearing a pair of welding goggles that he used while he was out doing his, his geology so he wouldn't get rock chips in the eyes, which is, you know, safety first. So he clipped those down, and you could see inside that it was filled with beams of light and panels of different colored lights, but he could see no signs of any living creatures in there. So he took a step back, and as he did, three panels slid shut across the door. He reached out and touched the craft, and it actually was so hot it melted the tips of the gloves that he was wearing, the fingertips of the gloves. And at this point, the craft began to turn counterclockwise, and he noticed a grid of holes which before he knew it, he was blasted by air or gas, which sent him flying backwards. It set his shirt on fire, set his hat on fire, and at this point the craft flew away. So he tore off his burning clothes, feeling disoriented and nauseous, and he made his way back to the bush, uh, all the way back to the hotel where he was staying. And the next day he was able to catch a bus back into Winnipeg. A lot of people, you know, at the hotel describe him as being very disoriented. Some people thought he was drunk when he came back, but he had these burns on his chest. So when he got back to Winnipeg, he was treated in the hospital and uh, included the photo of the burns that he had received, which is in like a grid-shaped pattern, like the, the holes he'd seen on the side of the craft. So this was heavily investigated by government agencies from both Canada and the U.S., including the United States Air Force and Despite all the investigation, all they could come up with was that it was unexplainable. So actually, something that I've always found kind of interesting about this is that Stephen Mahalik's son, Stan Mahalik, who wrote a book called When They Appeared, he had said until the day that his father died, he would describe this incident in great detail, but he would never say that it was extraterrestrials. He never had any proof that this was an alien encounter, so... As detailed as he would get, he would always leave it with he wasn't sure what he saw that day. He would never say it was extraterrestrials. So basically, like I said, I know this is a well-known story and, uh, you know, there's a lot of information out there about it, but it is a hometown legend, I guess, of sorts here in, uh, in Winnipeg, in Manitoba. So figured I'd uh, submit it. Thanks for listening. And yeah, like I said, if, if anybody's the outdoorsy type that's listening and you're looking for somewhere to go once, uh, you know, 
things uh, in, the, in the world kind of get back to normal, uh, definitely check out the white shell. It's it's absolutely gorgeous. Take a take a day and go uh, go canoe through the Caddy Lake tunnels. You you won't regret it. Thanks, Jeremy. And despite the fact that it was covered once before, I feel this case is significant enough to warrant another look. Now, typically, when I readdress a sighting and or legend, I like to find something new to bring to the table. After all, what are we learning if we don't continue to explore? And the Falcon Lake incident is no exception. However, older cases like this are awfully difficult to find new information for. So instead, I've sourced a clip that I thought well represented some of the activity it was actually reported in Stefan's strange encounter. The official conclusion by all government entities, including from the United States Air Force, was that the case was unexplainable. Items were later retrieved from the encounter site at Falcon Lake, including Stefan's glove and shirt, the latter of which was partially burnt and had a grid-like burn pattern on it. The cause of the burns was never ascertained. A circle about 15 feet in diameter was also found at the site, which was devoid of the moss and vegetation growing in other areas nearby. Soil samples, along with samples of clothing, were tested and found to be highly radioactive. Pieces of equally radioactive metal were chipped out of cracks in the rock about a year after the incident. The metal had somehow melted into the cracks. Again, this could not be explained. That informative segment is courtesy of Dark5 on YouTube, another highly recommended channel. And given the fact that Stefan died in 1999, this brief update is really all we have. And of course, I've also linked to the Unsolved Mysteries clip that Jeremy mentioned in his call. If you haven't, be sure to check that out. There's some pretty amazing interviews found in that episode, including from Stefan himself. So yeah, I don't know, Jeremy. Whatever it was certainly wasn't ordinary and is obviously something meant to stay secret. Perhaps with time, more answers will trickle in. But until then, thanks for the rehash. Support for tonight's episode of Monsters Among Us is brought to you by Manscaped, the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped, offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped is trusted by over 2 million men worldwide, and they're offering Monsters Among Us listeners 20% off, plus free shipping with the code MONSTERS at manscaped.com. Now, I love these guys. In fact, I already owned their product before they contacted me for a sponsorship. Now, after trying their Perfect Package 3.0, I'm an even bigger fan. Listen, we've all been caved up for a year, but with the pandemic finally letting up and the weather finally getting warmer, there's no need to continue looking like a Yeti once we're able to roam free amongst the others. Manscaped has created the best hair trimmer for your nether regions ever. The Lawnmower 3.0, their third generation trimmer, features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to advanced skin safe technology. The trimmer even has an LED light for a more precise shave. And it's waterproof, so you skunk apes can use it in the shower. 
The Manscaped Perfect Package 3.0 also includes the Crop Preserver, an anti-chafing ball deodorant and odorizer that will keep you smelling and feeling phenomenally clean. And the Crop Reviver, which keeps your downstairs from sweating, smelling, and sticking. As if Manscaped didn't already have me feeling like a whole new man, they tossed in a few free gifts. A pair of performance boxer briefs that were the softest I think I've ever felt and a high-quality travel bag to store all of my grooming goodies. So whether you're the big man ready to emerge from your lair, or you're looking for a gift to pamper your squatchy significant other, get 20% off and free shipping with the code MONSTERS, M-O-N-S-T-E-R-S, at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com with coupon code MONSTERS. Now, as always, and it goes without saying, supporting my sponsors supports the show. So thank you for your patronage. Now let's get back to the spooky stuff. Now, do you guys want to hear about a haunted bridge or a bridge-like structure? Well, here's Rachel from Virginia with just such a tale. Hi, Derek. This is Rachel, currently living in North Carolina, but originally from Virginia. I'm actually calling in relation to a woman who called from North Carolina this past season, season nine, episode 15, where she was talking about seeing a young woman in white walking across the street. The reason why I wanted to call in is because that is a very similar legend in the near the area where I'm currently living right now. In fact, when she started talking about the story, I thought she was talking about that legend. So I was a little disappointed when she wasn't, but it was still a very interesting story nonetheless. But I figured you might want to also hear of the legend from around here. So the legend is called A Lydia's Bridge. It's in Jamestown, North Carolina. And the basic gist is that a girl died heading back home and she now gets rides from different people. She's a phantom hitchhiker, so she disappears obviously before she gets home. And no one really knows who she is. The site that I read all this on and found out the location and uh, got some history about it, they they said that she could be anyone or no one. Uh, it's just kind of the local legend, obviously. So we heard about this, and it's only about a 20-minute or so drive from where we live, so we figured, me and my boyfriend figured, we would go and check it out. So the first time we ever went over there, we didn't see anything. I mean, it turned out after we'd gone there that the bridge isn't visible from the road anymore. And it's not actually a bridge, it's a tunnel. It's actually a train bridge and the, tu- and the cars go under it. So the original tunnel is actually further into the woods because the road moved. So we didn't really know that at the time, so we were kind of looking around, trying to figure out if we could see it, you know, if this is the right spot, if Lydia was around. and. We saw absolutely nothing, and then when we found out that it was in the trees, we didn't want to go in there because I don't really like getting bit by snakes. So uh, we decided just to kind of leave it alone. Thought it'd be a cool little story to tell people, and that was about it. Until about three or four weeks ago when I was in the middle of doing a ghost tour, and the person I was doing the tour for actually mentioned how Lydia's Bridge is now seen. You can see it from the road. And I was very surprised and I asked her why and she said that they were doing some kind of construction over the area so they cleared out the whole area and you can actually get to the bridge without having to walk through trees and you know 
chest-high grass. So as soon as I went home, I got my boyfriend. I told him, let's go. Let's see if we can't get to Lydia's Bridge tonight. By this point, it was around almost, almost 10 o'clock at night. And we made it over there. And it turns out you have to actually park pretty far away. So we parked and we walked all the way up to the bridge and we got to the modern day tunnel bridge. We got to one side of it. We could see that there was some construction. Couldn't really tell there was anything there. And so, and we all, honestly, when we got there, we got a really creepy feeling like something was watching us. So we decided to try the other side of the tunnel and see if we couldn't see Lydia's bridge from there. And again, we couldn't really see anything because again, it was dark. And also we were worried about trying to walk through a construction area because of you know safety reasons. And we also didn't want to get in trouble for trespassing. So we decided once again to kind of head home. But when we headed back towards where we had parked, once again, I decided to look at the first side of the bridge that we had stopped at. And that's when I finally like took the flashlight and I pointed it over into the dark. And there, just like at the very edge of the flashlight was this gaping black hole. And I knew immediately that that was, that was Lydia's bridge. And I freaked out at first and uh, fortunately it scared my boyfriend because he thought I had seen something. But I, I didn't see anything. I just saw the bridge and it freaked me out because I wasn't expecting it to be that close. I was expecting it to be further in the woods, but it was only like 100 feet in front of us, basically. So we kind of walked over there a little bit. I was terrified and he was terrified. So we didn't make it very far because we're very, we're pretty big scattered cats when it comes to ghosts. Although we love them, we're scared. <laughs> so we didn't make it all that far, but we kind of looked around a little bit as much as we could. We were also kind of worried if there were like homeless people around or anything. So we also, we just didn't want to go all the way in there. So fortunately we never saw anything, even though I took pictures, pictures never showed up anything either. But that is our little brush with the local hometown legend in our area. So maybe someone else has a better story than mine and maybe someone else has actually seen her. I think the construction that they're doing for that bridge is actually to make a sidewalk for people to walk along the side of the road. And I think the sidewalk is actually gonna go through that bridge slash tunnel. So that could actually be really, really cool. And hopefully, you know, more people will come up with stories if they're going through that bridge much more often. And maybe Lydia will be seen once again since she's been kind of dormant for a while. Okay, so I thought you guys would really like that. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Rachel. You know, I looked this thing up. I guess the best way to describe it is a concrete overpass for a railway. In fact, there's a plaque attached to the outside that reads, Jamestown Double Track and Bridge Project. This railroad bridge span was rebuilt as part of a nine-mile project to reinstall double track on the North Carolina Railroad. The original bridge was built by Southern Railway in 1916. The bridge upgrade and double rack project was constructed through a partnership between the North Carolina Railroad Company, North Carolina Department of Transportation, and Norfolk Southern Railway, December 9th, 2009. You know, it doesn't necessarily look like a place with this eerie reputation. Aside from the graffiti, it looks like any other innocuous overpass. But like all these legends, they're there for a reason. And wouldn't you know, I got to the bottom of at least some of this one, with some help from Spectrum News.
If you grew up in the triad, there's no doubt you've heard the legend of Lydia's Bridge. Maybe you've even seen the ghost they call Lydia. The legend says a woman named Lydia died in a crash right at this bridge coming home from prom. And to this day, people claim to see her. They say she asks for a ride to an address. And when they get to the address, she's not in the car anymore. Fact in these ghost stories very often does not match up to what the legend is. And Lydia is a prime example. Michael Reniger wrote a book about the woman called Looking for Lydia. Her real name was Annie Ludia Jackson. He's done extensive research. He says she was not a teenager. Annie Ludia Jackson was a 35-year-old factory worker for Vicks Chemicals who was in a car wreck at the underpass and died on June the 20th, 1920. He found her death certificate and her gravesite. He found the home of a cousin of hers who was alive when Annie died. The directions to the house where people who supposedly picked her up and took her and this cousin's house match. Rittiger says you shouldn't be scared of Lydia or Annie. If you see her and she wants a ride, give it to her. So the addresses match. That's certainly interesting. And the names, Lydia and Lydia, nearly match up as well. So, as with many others like this one, there's just enough fact to make believers out of those whom choose to believe. Great stuff, Rachel. Thanks again for calling in. Now our next dive into local legends and folklore comes to us from a caller named Angie. Hi, Derek. This is Angie. I love the show, and the, the Facebook group really brightens my day a lot. It's hard for me to narrow it down to a specific story, but I had a lot of experiences with my group of friends in college. You always end up finding other people interested in similar stuff, and we were all interested in the paranormal, and we ended up forming a ghost hunting club. And it was at Susquehanna University in, in Pennsylvania. I graduated in 2011, so the four years leading up to that is when I went there. There were a lot of ghost stories on campus. We talked about the faceless girl. I, I don't know what the exact deal with that was. Is a little girl with no face. People talked about these two young kid twin ghosts in one of the residence halls that, that I, I heard people say who lived there that they were friendly and they liked to kind of play pranks on students, like moving objects or that sort of thing even helpful sometimes like uh, I think I might have heard somebody say like the kids folded some of their laundry or something like that <laughs> what we all thought was the most haunted place on campus was the chapel it basically combines a, a lot of haunted things in, in one place well it, it's the chapel because it was originally a Lutheran college and they still do services there on Sundays and there's a a Christmas candlelight service is really popular, though nobody is required to go to anything. Also, the theater department does a lot of stuff there, so there's the auditorium where there's theater productions. There's a small meditation chapel where anybody can go to pray. It's a fairly large theater department, fairly active, so there's some of that creepy stuff like the places they keep the props and that sort of thing. 
we were kind of close to a lady who ran a metaphysical sort of shop in the local area and, and she once walked through and she thought she really got a feeling that there was a lot of activity in there and we did ghost hunts in there. We were often in there at night and I had a K2 meter like on, on ghost hunters and a voice recorder and a lot of the time nothing really happened but it was definitely an interesting experience and th there was this one hallway that we all got an eerie feeling about. I don't know if it was just paranoia or maybe bad wiring or something like that. It's a fairly old building, but we all called it the evil hallway because we had a really eerie feeling about the certain hallway for some reason. There's quite a few passages through there. So with the, the side rooms for, there's the big auditorium in the middle. There's the little meditation chapel. There's the rooms where they keep things for the theater department. There's this little kind of a, a crawl space that's kind of creepy because it's just like some theater stuff and a piano in there. Anyway, what I was getting to was even though we thought the place was super haunted, maybe we shouldn't have done this, but sometimes late at night we would play murder in there and, and with a group of people. It's, uh, I don't know, if, if you don't know what that is, it, it's like a game of tag, but like you're pretending that somebody's the murderer, and if you get caught, then you just lay down and pretend to, that you got killed. And so late at night in this haunted chapel, we would run around <laughs> playing this game, and I definitely have good memories of that, and like, you definitely get a creepy feeling, even though I never personally had stuff happen to me too much. And I'd like to believe my friends who, who say they felt something, though even though I've always been interested, I've never, maybe I'm just not sensitive to it or something, I don't know. And along with we would play that game of murder in there. Also, when we started the Ghost Hunting Club, we started a yearly tradition of doing a, a haunted house in the haunted chapel and I liked this one time I, I was up in that creepy kind of crawl space with the piano in it and I was just kind of occasionally playing some notes on the piano we had like cobwebs but the one time we were doing the haunted house I wasn't there at the time but when one of them was setting up a, a big spotlight I wasn't there to see it, but I heard from a few of the others that this big spotlight, it just flew across the room and it broke. So we definitely think something was actually with us there that night while we were doing the haunted house. Hope you like my stories of the kids running, <laughs> college kids running around the haunted chapel. Love the podcast. Thanks. Thanks, Angie. Your entry actually got me thinking. I wondered what the most haunted college campuses are in the United States. So thanks to Campus Explorer, here are the top nine most haunted colleges and universities in the U.S. Number nine, Kenyon College in Ohio. A school I was aware of, but I had no idea had this reputation. Number eight, Cal State Channel Islands. California, the site of a former mental institution. That's never a good start. Number seven, Hollins University in Virginia. That's sort of a no-brainer. Like that's sort of a spooky part of the country in general. Number six, 
East Tennessee State University, apparently haunted by the ghost of a former president. Number five, Penn State. Not only are these guys an arch rival of my favorite collegiate program, but they're apparently haunted by a mule as well. Number four, Fordham University in New York. Not only one of the filming sites of The Exorcist, but home to a hundred hauntings as well. Gettysburg College in Pennsylvania. I don't have to tell you why this one makes the list, but this is the school featured in that Unsolved Mysteries clip I was searching for earlier on in season 10. Number two, Ohio University. Fun fact, I almost ended up going to the school myself, and I did my fair share of partying down there. Now, word is they have an entire dorm room that's off limits due to high levels of paranormal activity. And lastly, number one, Wells College in New York, rumored to be haunted by the victims of an influenza epidemic that swept through the campus. So there you have it. Thanks again, Angie, for the info. Now, our next amazing story takes us all the way back to Massachusetts, where Joe has his hometown legend to share. Hi, Derek. Hi, Amongsters. My name is Joe. I wanted to call in with a hometown legend. To be fair, my actual hometown is in New York, but I'm actually going to call in uh, about a story in Cape Cod, where I live now. So for those who don't know, Cape Cod is the tail that extends off the southeast of Massachusetts. And basically, if you picture someone making a muscle with their left arm, that's what it looks like. So back in the early 1700s, there was an English sailor with the British Royal Navy named Samuel Bellamy. He was known as Black Sam because he preferred to wear his long black hair tied with a satin ribbon rather than covering it up with uh, one of those white powdered wigs, as was the fashion. Bellamy came to Cape Cod at some point, possibly because he had family around here. And a lot of this is historic, but there is some, you know, local legend mixed in here and there, and there's different versions. At some point, it's said that he kind of started courting a woman from Wellfleet. And now if you go back to my arm map, Wellfleet is the ocean side of the forearm of Cape Cod. Uh, So this woman was named Mary or possibly Maria Hallett. In some stories, she's a teenager, and in others, she's kind of an older woman, and she's possibly already married to somebody else. But basically, all the versions agree that her family didn't really want her taking up with this sailor. In about 1715, a Spanish ship sank off the coast of Florida laden with gold, and Bellamy headed south in search of this treasure. Some say his plan was to, you know, make a fortune there and then return to his love and, you know, legitimize their relationship and and get married and uh, start a life together. Turns out someone else beat Bellamy to the treasure, though, and with no other means to kind of make money, his crew turned to piracy under the command of Ben Hornigold and Blackbeard himself, actually. So after a while, Sam took command of his own ship, and within just a year, he had become the wealthiest pirate in recorded history. He was known as the Prince of Pirates, and he was known to be kind of merciful and and generous. He eventually captured a slave ship called the Witta, and supposedly he offered the slaves on the ship a place on his crew rather than, you know, being slaves. So meanwhile, back in Wellfleet, back in Cape Cod, Maria found she was pregnant with Sam's baby, and she secretly gave birth in a barn. The baby didn't survive long, and some stories claim that the infant choked on some hay while Maria was out going to find some food. But others kind of suggest that Maria might have killed the baby, either to cover it up or possibly even sacrificed it, because as you'll see in a second, she starts to get a reputation. She's uh, driven from town, she's forced to live in a shanty in the woods, and is 
thought that she turned to Satan to survive. So she spent some time in jail after that and it's suggested that she had an uncanny knack for escaping. I've heard stories of either a dark man coming to her or possibly uh, another witch named Mahitabel. But there's a couple of witches on the Cape and I think sometimes they get confused with each other. So who knows what the actual story is. But Maria Hallett herself came to be known as the Witch of Wellfleet. Locals report seeing her up on the cliffs nearby, watching the sea, hoping for Bellamy to return, and sometimes wearing her best red shoes, which gave her another nickname, the Witch of the Red Heels. So back to Bellamy, it's 1717 now, he's a wealthy pirate, and he decides to come back to Wellfleet with his new ship and reunite with uh, Maria. Unfortunately, the coast of Cape Cod, already a notorious ship's graveyard, And uh, to make matters worse, the night Bellamy was pulling in, he got caught in a powerful nor'easter, and the Witta sank just off the coast of Wellfleet. Some locals reported seeing Maria call up the storm from the cliffs, you know, using her witchy powers. And the area there is now known as either the Devil's Pasture or Lucifer Land. (laughs) I've actually never heard anyone call it that, but uh, according to some of the stories, that's what some people call it. The wreck of the Witta actually kind of became a myth itself uh, for over a century. Some thought that maybe moon cussers, those moon cussers are, are people who live in the area and would like intentionally try to shipwreck ships and then plunder their cargo. There's not a lot of evidence that that's an actual thing that happened on the Cape, but it's a story that I've heard. But if you ask anybody, hey, you ever seen any of that treasure? They, they typically get offended and would not say anything. So people thought that was all part of like the cover up. But then in the early 1980s, a treasure hunter named Barry Clifford actually managed to find the wreck of the widow off the coast of Wellfleet, and this became the first authenticated pirate ship wreck recovered in North America. So several supernatural stories are kind of tied to Maria Hallett. As I said, she was thought of as a witch, and, uh, you know, all the classic witchy kind of things, I think, were kind of tied to her, you know, like spoiled crops and and, uh, milk going bad, those sorts of things, people getting sick. But uh, I heard some unusual things, like that she tied lights to whales' tails to warn ships away from rocks, so kind of the opposite of a moon cusser, I guess, in that case. Her ghost has also been reported in in a couple of different places. So she's been seen in the Barnstable Jailhouse, so back to my anatomical map that's the bicep of cape cod uh the barnstable jailhouse it's one of the oldest standing jailhouses in the u.s and you can actually still do a a ghost tour of that place today i've been there she's also been seen around the cliffs of wellfleet there's a nice trail you can do up there called the great island trail and there's the ruins of a tavern somewhere up in there that you can go visit along the trail and i believe that tavern had some ties to either smuggling or piracy uh because it's right there on the on the water also I also heard that while Barry Clifford was recovering the pirate treasure, they heard ghostly voices coming over their radio uh, saying something about my ship, and they experienced a lot of equipment failure. And just in general, that whole expedition is really kind of fascinating because it was really hard to find the ship. The, The sand covered it up really pretty quickly, and it was hard to find, even though it was right off the coast. There's also uh, the treasure today is in a couple of different museums. There's one in Yarmouth. And if you go back to my arm, it's the tricep of Cape Cod is Yarmouth. And uh, the museum there has some of the actual pirate treasure. There's also a museum up in P-Town, which is up by the Fist. And I've heard that ghosts have been associated with the treasure and people have spotted things in the museums too. So Cape Cod is full of ghosts and ghost ships and, and witches and all those things. But But this is really my favorite story. Truth be told, I'm actually not a believer in the paranormal. I just really find the stories fascinating. And this one having so much historical background to it, even even without the ghost of Maria Hallett or the witch part, uh, I think it's still really a cool story. I actually named my dog Bellamy after this pirate. 
So I hope you like the story. Derek, keep up the good work. Never stop trying to debunk because, like I said, I'm not a believer. But somehow, you know, something about you opening your mind to uh, more mundane explanations makes it easier for me to kind of, you know, consider the the more paranormal explanation. So kind of like a a balancing act, I guess. Uh, Anyway, thanks. Bye. Thanks, Joe. I like the way you look at things. And since you're not a believer in the paranormal, you're going to absolutely love what I'm about to say next. All this pirate talk got me wondering, how are the ghost pirate Irish woman nuptials actually going? You may remember Amanda Teague. She married a pirate's ghost back in 2019. Amanda Teague says she has found her soulmate. The first thing he said to me is, I'm dead, you know. And I was like, yes, I know, I get that. (laughs) Amanda is a pirate impersonator, married to a 300-year-old ghost pirate. I'm the first person in the UK and Ireland to to marry um, posthumously. So so there was really no precedent in the law here as to whether you could or couldn't do it. There was just nothing because it had never been done. She says when deceased pirate John Teague contacted her spiritually, she had some doubts. But he proved himself by telling her historic facts she later googled and found to be true. I had found um, by the Christmas that I had developed romantic feelings for him, which was was very unusual because um, I had never heard of anybody (laughs) um, developing romantic feelings for for a, a spirit energy that they worked with. Amanda says she's seen John in astro travel and in meditation. The two were married on international waters, surrounded by a small group of friends and family, everyone in high spirits. A canvas painting of Johnny Depp's character Jack Sparrow is seen in photos of their wedding. Well, brace yourselves. I have some really bad news. Apparently, Amanda says that the relationship is over. After being married to the ghost of a 300-year-old pirate for nearly three years, Amanda Sparrow-Large says their relationship has ended. I do know that the marriage is over and looking into ways to dissolve it. How that's going to work is, is still a bit of a mystery. Well, the wedding day itself was a disaster. Everything went wrong. And pretty much from there on in, I had probably the worst run of luck like that anybody could imagine. Amanda says that's when her health started to decline. Unfortunately, Jack was taking far too much energy and literally draining me and and pretty much just using me for his own selfish intentions. You think you know a person. You let them into your life, and in this case, your soul. And this is what you get. I guess I never say it on here enough. But never trust the dead. Those clips are courtesy of Inside Edition. And thanks again, Joe. I hope my fourth hour buffoonery didn't tarnish your amazing entry. I'm a sucker for almost any good pirate story. Now, you guys didn't think I'd use up all the Lake Monster stories in the first part, did you? Thanks to an anonymous caller from the state of Wyoming... We can also add Smetty to the list of lurking lake demons. 
Hey, Derek, I got one that you haven't heard yet. At least I haven't heard it on the podcast. Uh, this would have been good for the hometown legends. But there is a lake in Wyoming, Lake DeSmit. Uh, probably the biggest town next to it's uh, Sheridan, but it's a little bit outside of Sheridan. Supposedly they, they got uh, some sea monsters in there, two sea monsters. And, uh, well, I was up there about a week ago. And my cousin was talking to me, and his wife no longer goes on that lake because one time her and her mom were in a fishing boat, and something lifted the boat up and flipped them over. And so uh, she thinks she had an experience with the with the lake monster there. So I don't know. It would be pretty crazy if something like that was true, but check it out. Later. Thank you, sir. I'd say that's quite substantial, the ability to raise a boat out of the water. It's very reminiscent of the White River Monster we discussed in the first installment. Well, as luck would have it, I know very little about the Lake DeSmet monster outside its rumored existence. So I started where all good monster hunters should, with the habitat. Now, Lake DeSmet is a natural body of water, but its natural form is a far cry from the 3,400-acre lake you see today. Up until the 1920s, the lake was alkaline, meaning rich in dangerous metals that make the water near inhabitable. Well, that's when locals altered the shape of the lake, allowing rain and snowmelt to dilute the metals, leaving a lush body of water that you have today. While that's great for the walleye, bass, trout, and crappie found in the lake, it doesn't bode well for the history of our friend Smetty. Then again, perhaps the creature is somehow tolerant of both water conditions, or grew to its current size in the last 100 years. Whatever it is, welcome to the gang, Smetty. And thank you, caller, for sharing his tale with us. And here we are, folks. The final call of the evening. And I saved a doozy for last. All the way from another locale, high on my list to visit. Please welcome Al from New Zealand to the program. Hello, Derek. My name is Al, and I'm sending you this from New Zealand, hopefully for consideration in your upcoming Hometown Legends. Forty years ago, few people would even have been able to point to my little country on a world map. But I really want to share a pretty well-documented event which put New Zealand and my little hometown in world headlines on New Year's Day 1979. I'm talking about the Kaikoura UFOs. Now this was uh, multiple encounters with aerial objects which were not only filmed from a plane, but simultaneously confirmed by numerous government radar contacts. But talking about it always causes me a little bit of frustration to be honest, because you see, one of the world's best documented UFO sightings happened more or less directly above my head, and I was asleep. I was 12 years old and I was utterly oblivious to the fact that the skies were at that moment full of a phenomenon which I usually sent everyone else to sleep with by talking about all the time. It was late December 1978 and I loved all things sci-fi and the unexplained. I still do in fact, including your wonderful podcast. 
Anyway, Star Wars, and more significantly, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, had finally screened in New Zealand earlier that year. And to say that space travel and extraterrestrial beings were in the zeitgeist, well that would have been a massive understatement. This particular event first began just before December, just before midnight on December the 21st, 1978, when a warrant officer at my town's uh, Royal Air Force Base spotted unusual lights in the southern sky. He communicated with aircraft controllers in our capital city, Wellington, and they were also able to confirm the objects with radar returns. This was a pretty amazing in itself, but through the course of that early morning, the objects were also tracked by aircraft travelling on nearby flight paths. But not only that, Wellington Radar confirmed that the objects were actually following the planes at amazing speeds. The warrant officer and the aircraft crews also described the objects as projecting powerful beams which lit up the sea in the vicinity of a nearby coastal town called Kaikoura, hence the name of this uh, event. When this got out, it caused enough of a stir for an Australian news channel to charter the plane nine days later. They organised for a television reporter called Quentin Fogarty to make the report and he took a cameraman and a sound person on board with him and they flew on the same early morning flight path. So they took to the air just before midnight and incredibly the phenomenon reoccurred almost as soon as they were in the air. So for the following three hours of flying, that is the flight down to a city called Christchurch and back again, they were surrounded by clusters not just one or two, but clusters of hovering, darting lights, which were all confirmed by multiple radar readings. But this time it was filmed. Personally, I do remember the now famous footage shot by Quentin Fogarty's camera crew. And it was interesting because Fogarty reported that he felt as if their Argosy freighter, that is the aircraft that they were in, was being played with by the mysterious objects, as if they were a lumbering fishing boat surrounded by a mischievous pod of darting, leaping dolphins. But the footage itself, well, sadly does little to convey this. Apparently, the cameraman was jammed into a cramped aircraft interior. There was a lot of uh, bumping around, as there always is in aircraft, and he was forced to try and film and focus through a tiny little window. So really, the fact that he got anything at all was quite amazing. The footage that was captured shows a fuzzy, squashed orange, which bumped around TV screens all over the country and eventually the world, accompanied by Fogarty's excited narration. It is still remarkable, however, especially when Fogarty describes one of the objects as having a transparent upper section and an opaque lower hemisphere. And what's amazing even more amazing still is that this object later performs a manoeuvre which leaves a shape like a glowing orange ampersand, and this is on a single frame of film. In the days that followed, obviously, there was an enormous amount of international attention and publicity. A jet fighter was even kept on high alert at the Air Force Base, ready to scramble at first hint of another unearthly incursion. And sadly, perhaps, this never happened. The summer went on, tension died down and this astonishing incident all but faded into folklore. It seems strange to me. I mean, this was the only case of an unidentified flying object ever verified by multiple radar sources and visual sightings simultaneously. And this was by reliable people. 
flight crews, air traffic controllers. And on top of that, it was actually filmed. So that was three different forms of verification happening simultaneously. But despite this, few people seem to remember this incident today. The only echoes of it that I was aware of years later came from seeing the pilot's son mercilessly ribbed in my school class because of his father's experiences. But it's clear that there was an awful lot more to this story than the public was ever made aware of. And this was emphasised by the whitewash report prepared by the New Zealand Defence Force. Their explanations ran from the lights of a nearby Japanese fishing fleet to the planet Venus. An old favourite, that one. (sighs) These explanations were embarrassingly inadequate, uh, not the least because Venus hadn't even risen at the time of this occurrence. In fact, it was almost insulting. The air crew were highly experienced and respected airmen who knew very well what Venus looked like and were also familiar with the nearby Japanese fleet. In 2010, the New Zealand Defence Force made public its own version of Project Blue Book, a compendium of UFO reports stretching back decades. From what I read, I quickly found that not only did I grow up in the region that was famous for the Kaikoura UFOs, but my hometown and surrounds seems to have always been a hotbed for unexplained aerial phenomena. Even I'd seen my own unexplained light in the sky when I was very young, but perhaps because it wasn't really regarded as anything that unusual in the place that I grew up in, my memory is just kind of faded into a kind of vague inconsequence with time. Looking back at the Kaikoura UFOs, the other thing that occurs to me is that it may, in fact, it was deliberately downplayed by our government. And when you consider the um, age that it happened, this is not too surprising. The Cold War was still looming very, very large in everyone's minds. And an anxious government caught short by the possibility of foreign aircraft making merry in our airspace probably unnerved a lot of higher officials quite understandably. So that's my hometown legend. Not so much a legend as a, as a widely reported event, but as I say, kind of fading into folklore nonetheless. So thank you so much, Derek, for allowing me to share this and for all the wonderful work you do with Monsters Among Us. As you already know, you have many grateful fans all across the world. So please keep up the wonderful work and may nights at the round table long continue. Thank you, Al. This entire case is fairly new to me. If I'd heard of it in the past, it went in one ear and right out the other. But I doubt that's the case because the story is downright fascinating. I did some digging on the subject and my fascination only grew. Let's start off with New Zealand itself. Not only does the place seem to be a UFO hotspot, but the citizens and government also seem to welcome open discussion on the subject. In fact, the New Zealand government even released hundreds of former top-secret documents regarding sightings from 1954 to the current time of 2010. So I get the impression that it's not as much a laughing matter as it sometimes can be here in the States. But beyond all that, the actual events that took place back in late 78 and early 79 were nothing short of amazing. Not only were these strange lights seen by numerous witnesses, and not only were they confirmed on radar, but they were also captured on film by those very witnesses. 
something that might seem commonplace today, but not so much so back then. Excluding the radar part, of course. Now I realize this is an audio platform, and I can't easily share this film footage with you, but I did post it up in the show notes, and the accompanying audio is worthy of a quick listen. The following is a condensed version of that Australian television footage. We're now approaching the Claret River, where the highest concentration of UFOs was sighted on the morning of December the 21st. We're at an altitude of 14,000 feet, and we're on exactly the same route taken by Captain Bell when he encountered those mysterious objects. It's a beautiful clear night outside, and naturally we'll be looking out for anything unusual. Uh, we've just heard from Wellington Radar that we've uh, got an object about a mile behind us and it's following us. Let's hope they're friendly. It's uh, really getting uh, a bit frightening up here. There's a whole formation of un- unidentified flying objects behind us. But there were closer encounters to come. On the return journey from Christchurch, Fogarty spotted another object. It's extremely bright, much brighter than any of the other stars in the sky. Now it's just dimmed, it's, it's gone. It's back again, it appears to be going behind cloud. I can't quite make up whether it in fact is going behind cloud or whether in fact the light is just dimming. No, it's such a bright light, it's lighting up the clouds around it. This is by far the best of the unidentified flying objects we've seen so far. According to our cameraman, David Crockett, who's been filming it for the past few moments, it appears to have a brightly lit bottom and a transparent sort of sphere on top. So it appears to be, well, like a, a flying saucer. Now, in all honesty, the footage is fairly underwhelming, save for a few frames that seem to depict a craft of some sort. The rest are blurry, bouncy, orange lights on a black screen. But it's the overall of this experience that keeps my interest. And in my research, I managed to find a story about the sound tech on that chute refusing to go back up in the air for the return flight. Something about the events of the first trip left her feeling as if her life may have been in danger. Quentin Fogarty himself, the reporter from the previous clip and from Al's entry, claims he too was terrified to go back up, but felt it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Thankfully, he went anyway. Now, unfortunately, Fogarty died in July of 2020, and I wasn't able to find any recent interviews with him. But from what I gather, the experience really opened his mind and eyes so to speak. But despite all these details and opinions, the mystery remains. What was it that they saw that winter? An investigation by the New Zealand authorities suggested the objects could have been fishing lights from squid boats, planets, or even moonlight reflecting off fields of cabbages. But all the witnesses are adamant none of these explanations add up. certainly wasn't a a squid boat. I never seen one on 13,000 feet up in the air anyway. Venus hadn't risen, so I don't know what it was. 
The air crew could have seen the light reflected from cabbages, but I've never known cabbages reflect on a radar screen before. And certainly, I'd like to know who was growing cabbages 20 miles out of the southeast of Wellington, well over the sea. I know what uh, Venus looks like, I know what planets look like and stars look like, and it was definitely none of those things. I wish I did know what I saw, but I've got no idea. I can only tell you, I saw targets on my radar that I can't explain. I believe that that the only logical explanation is that it didn't come from the planet Earth. They were unidentified flying objects. Things from outer space? I don't know. Does anyone? Look outside on a starry night. If you say we're the only ones alive in this universe, I'll call you the biggest egotist ever. Cabbage. Fields of cabbage. Now you'd think these officials could be a little less imaginative when making up this crap. Call me naive, but I can't help but think that a seasoned pilot, half a dozen other witnesses, a television camera, and radar, all being fooled by cabbage. And to me, that's almost as likely as aliens visiting New Zealand. Seriously, who do these people think we are? Anyway, at the end of the day, like most other cases like this one, we're left with more questions than answers. But somehow, with each trickle of info that comes in, we find ourselves one step closer to the truth. Thank you again, Al, for taking the time to share your story. And thank you for your continued support. Monsters Among Us Beyond is written and produced by me, Derek Hayes. All audio used in this production is done so under the protection of fair use. And you can keep the party rolling by following us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and Reddit. And that terrifying score you hear, let's code.ag music and white bat audio. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for the support. Have a great night. Now, I usually don't do a secret story on Monsters Among Us Beyond episodes, but since this will eventually air as a regular episode, I figured I'd stick around for a little more. This one, however, is not a submission, but rather a bit of a deleted scene. I wanted to discuss this mysterious gentleman all the way back in Eddie's story, when we were discussing the death of Edgar Allan Poe. Well, since 1949, here, actually... I'll let an expert tell you, courtesy of Hidden Baltimore.
My name is Lou Ann Marshall and I'm tour director for the site and I've been doing this for 30 years. Since 1949, someone's come into the graveyard, left a half bottle of Martel cognac and three red roses, one for each member of the Poe family buried under the monument. The tradition has been going on since then until 2011. A man comes into the graveyard in the middle of the night dressed in a very nice overcoat and a black hat carrying a silver-tipped cane. He leaves the bottle of Martel cognac and the roses. We don't know if he said a prayer or a toast or whatever, and he would leave very quietly. And he stopped in 2011. We're not sure if the Poe toaster passed away and no one is here to revive it, uh, but the Ed Ground Poe House does sponsor a birthday party in January to honor Poe's memory. Now, since my recordings essentially last forever, one day I'll be dead. But through this media, I'll live on. Honestly, it's freaking weird to think about. But I say that to say this. Maybe one of you future listeners can become the monster toaster and leave beef jerky and Skittles on the grave of your favorite weirdo. Until that day, however... I'll forever love the dedication of this person or these people. I've heard a claim that in the latter years, many of the toasters appeared different year after year. Different heights, weights, builds. And I even heard that some claim a woman had taken over. Regardless, I'm happy I was able to squeeze this story in. Thanks for sticking around to the end of the program. Thank you so much for the support. Have a great night.
Hi, everyone. Tonight's episode is the long-awaited sequel to last season's Hometown Legend finale. We're working on a few things on the back end this week. And this is typically where I like to share last season's Part 2 closer anyway. Now keep in mind, this is an episode that aired exclusively on our Patreon page. Part of content that you can unlock for $4 or less per month. But tonight, everyone gets a glimpse of what's behind that curtain. So, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, your Season 10, Hometown Legends Finale, Part 2. (laughs) 